This week on the Boag World Show, we explore Lean UX with Adam Pycroft and ask whether it's anything more than just shortcutting the design process. This week, the show is sponsored by Media Temple and our very own Headscape. Welcome to BoagWorld.com, the podcast for all those involved in designing, developing and running websites on a daily basis. My name's Paul, I'm being joined as always by Marcus. Hello Marcus. Hello Paul, how are you? Very well actually, very well indeed. We've also got um, Adam. Adam, I've just re- I was just about to say Adam Pycroft is on the show and realised you have a double barreled name. How posh is that? <laughs> Well, yeah, it could could be could be that I'm posh. There's also another alternative. It may be the latter. Let's find out. <laughs> what's, the, what's the latter? Well, no, it's um, I, I'm I'm married, and uh, I actually had a double-barreled name prior to marriage. Um, Ooh, so you because, swapped one double barrel for another double barrel. Yes, yeah, essentially. Um, basically, well, yeah, yeah. It may it may have been that my parents were not married at the time of my birth, or it may be down to the fact that I'm very posh. We'll find out today. <laughs> <laughs> if you kept all three, then you'd have been really posh. Well, you see, if we ever wanted to live in Germany, apparently it's illegal there to have a triple barreled name. Although, um, actually, I went to, I did a track day in a BMW i8 fairly recently. I know this is slightly off topic, but well, uh, welcome to that, the podcast. That's this podcast, yeah. 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 Um, and it was somewhere near Loughborough, and the people who were in the stately home which had the track next to it had a triple-barreled name. So mm. my wife was very excited by that. <laughs> so it's Babaji, is that how Babaji you Pycroft, yeah. Yeah, Babaji Pycroft. So uh, that's the Babaji part, which is, of course, the interesting part there is from my wife's side of the family. She's half Mauritian. Ooh, Mauritian. That sounds nice. Does that mean you get to go on lots of holidays to Mauritius? I've been there once so far, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, yeah, I'd say that's definitely a perk. Can't complain about that. <laughs> yeah, that was I, obviously the been. only reason you married her, wasn't it? Was <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because you thought you might get a holiday in Mauritius. <laughs> there's, there's no response to that, is there? Right. <laughs> it was Adam. one of the many possible benefits of my lovely wife. Yes, yeah. I'm sure. Just in case she might listen to this. She never will, will she? She, won't. No, she will. She, she works in, uh, she does digital marketing. Oh, for right. a, uh, We'll say a major heritage charity at the moment. So digital that, marketing and digital content. So uh, she might listen to this. So, so that's either English Heritage or the National or Trust. National Trust. Both of whom are based next to each other in Swindon. Yes, I know. How bizarre is that? We used to work for the National Trust back in the day. We used to do work for the National Trust mm. just, oh, just before they moved to um, Swindon, didn't we, Marcus? Yes, it was uh, most of the – because I remember the move to Swindon was one of those things that organisations do to rationalise, I think is the word they use. Um, and it meant that a lot of the – well, basically all of our contacts were all London-based and they didn't stay with the National Trust. So it kind of like, well, that's that then. <laughs> that was the end of our relationship with the National Trust. Never mind. These things happen. Okay. So uh, we know all about your wife, Adam, but do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is you do? 
So I run a uh, user experience consultancy or agency, depending on what we were calling ourselves on that particular day, called Natural Interaction. Okay. Um, and we really specialise primarily in lean user experience. Ah, hence you're on this show. Yes, yeah. So how many of you are there in your little group? So as of today... Uh, we've actually signed um, up our latest employee, Ooh. Elizabeth Bowie, who is a uh, extremely experienced user experience consultant. She's joining us as principal UX consultant. Ooh. But in total, to answer your original question, there's four of us. Oh, okay. Cool. That's oh, that's a, cool, a nice cool number. Yeah. yeah, nice size. Yeah, keep it small. I'm a great yeah. believer in that. Weren't things so much easier, Marcus, when it was just the three of us and Chris Sanderson? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of – when we went up to 19 people, I didn't like it at all. Now we're back down to eight full-time. It's lovely. So that yeah. feels like it's the same as four, really. It's just I, it, it manageable. Yeah. i got to say, actually, after I just said that comment, actually, I was working really hard when there was four of us, <laughs> far harder than I did when there was eight of us. So, yeah. So, so Adam, you actually work for a living. Yes. We're not, yes, so, we're not uh, used to that. <laughs> You might not be. <laughs> hey, talking of uh, talking of my hard work, I've just got back from a brilliant conference in Philadelphia. I had such fun. Uh, and look, don't judge, because when I tell you that it's a project manager's conference, you're going to wonder why I had such fun. But it was really good. Is that where they keep phase two? Yes. That's funny. Ha <laughs> ha. Yeah, no, a project manager, digital project manager conference, really enjoyed it, really good group of people called the DPM Summit. And there was some really good talks and stuff um, that were there. So uh, if you are a project manager, because project managers are always like the, the, the kind of, you know, ugly stepchild, aren't they, of the digital world? <laughs> Everybody goes, oh, what do they do? We know we have to have them, but, you know, really? <laughs> I don't, I don't know. It's uh, I, I like to make make the ones that I work with work hard for anything. <laughs> I think there's actually in defence of project managers, which I, I suspect you guys didn't suggest, didn't expect me to say. Yeah. I, I actually think they're fantastic. They're fantastic for helping kind of have those kind of frequent uh, frequent interaction with clients. Yeah. I, I think they're brilliant. Yeah, see, even even a lean UX man thinks project managers are worthwhile. No, actually, my entire talk was, was in some ways, um, project managers are almost the best people for improving user experience because they, you know, they might not be UI designers, but they can help with all of those other areas of UX, where a lot of which is about you know uh, collaboration of lots of different people coming together. They're really good for maybe challenging some of the underlying business processes and all that kind of stuff. So I think they they play an immensely valuable role. So they're very cool in my opinion. Mm. Which is why Marcus, you must never be a project manager. <laughs> well, because I'm not very cool. No. <laughs> <laughs> you were cool straight back at you paul you used to... <laughs> yeah but you used to be cool i've never been cool there's a difference so therefore i'm slightly higher up the the run yeah the i never i i never claimed that i was cool i was just you know we I, we know our place is what i'm saying i really like project managers as well oh, they, they make my life um, well, because basically, because I was been, I was spent the first six months of this year project managing. I don't, I don't like it. 
now, now, <laughs> now Emma's joined us. I'm doing much less. So <gasps> I'm very need, happy. We need to get Emma on the show. Yeah, I'm sure she'd be up for that. She'd be brilliant, I reckon. I yeah. reckon she'd be good on the show. We'll get her on at some point. Now that Pete's left, we'll replace Pete with Emma. Yeah. <laughs> how dare he leave? Right. And oh, uh, while we're talking about how cool I am, because that's what really matters on the show, is um, I, I was on the BBC News website this week. Ooh, yeah, I, you uh, were. And they said you were past it. No, they didn't. <laughs> Yes, they, they did. No, they didn't. They That's... described me as a veteran. Yeah. And I da- think... Damning with faint praise, Paul, I believe that's called. Well, at least they came to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. Me and, me and Mark, who's the, the journalist at the BBC, were like that. <laughs> I'm doing a cross-finger thing. Yeah, yeah, no, that was very exciting. All about ad blockers and the mobile web and, and whether ad blockers are a good idea. What do you think about ad? What's your opinion on this controversy around ad blockers i think providing they don't disrupt the user experience i think that users have an opportunity you know i think it's right for users to be able to control which content they see mm. having said that i think we all appreciate free content and i think my my view on it is ad blockers are fine people should use you know are entitled to use ad blockers but at the same time i think they should use them responsibly and think about the fact that some of the great kind of free content that's out there to consume yeah, but maybe you, someone's got to someone's got to produce that. Mm. Oh, absolutely, and, and you know, I've, I'm all for people making money, um, but I've got to say, I think I think ads, in my opinion, are a kind of shit way of making money. Mm. I think they're, and I think they're also a shit form of advertising as well. You know, they're massively ineffective. They take up loads of space. They ruin the user experience. What we can They also damage credibility. Exactly. They, they you can we can do better than we can do better than ads. I mean, you know, you've got a couple of routes, right? You've got the the kind of um smashing magazine route, right? Who've diversified. Yes, they still have ads, fair enough, but they don't care if people block them because that's only a small part of their revenue stream. They make money from books, from conferences, from workshops, all these other things. So there's, there are alternative models and anybody could do those kinds of things. That isn't unique in any way to, to smashing magazine. And then the other option is to do the, the, the approach that I occasionally do, which is I have kind of, um, content sponsored content posts so for example i've just um well will it be out by the time this shows out yeah there, i've just posted um something about open source content management systems um which was sponsored by a, um, a group called acquia who provide all kinds of um you know kind of support stuff for, for implementing drupal based content management systems and that provides really valuable good content and is advertising for them. So I think this, I just think it's going to force digital marketing to evolve a bit, really. So that's my opinions. But that wasn't what the article was about. It was more about the kind of the fact that the mobile web is slow and painful. But that's largely because of advertising and tracking. So there we go. Yep. Anyway, talking about sponsorship and such. Oh, I've just done a really bad thing. <laughs> oh. No, no, I've just, I've just said a pop-up came on my screen saying, would you like to update Evernote? And I clicked yes without thinking, and my show notes are in Evernote. <laughs> so, so I can't continue with the show until Evernote <laughs> finishes updating. Oh. I, and I was about to see, I got a transition so nicely into the You the could sponsor. open it in the browser. 
I could have, but it's up now. It's fine. Yeah. It's quick. Yeah. So talking about advertising and making money, sponsors, Media Temple are back on the show again. They're sponsoring a the whole season, which is very generous of them. In fact, they they sponsored the speakers' dinner at um, at uh, the the Digital Project Manager Summit I was just at. And very nice it was too, Marcus. You would have loved it. I know you love your food. I do. Except it was the trouble with Media Temple speaker dinners is they're so generous and so nice that there is this constant stream of wine the whole evening, and the waiters just keep going around topping up your glass, so you've no idea how much you've drunk. Nothing wrong with that. Well, <laughs> not if you've got to speak the next day, it isn't. <laughs> it's ah. first up. Talking of food, I noticed on Adam's blog there's a recipe for cookies, which I thought was a rather nice thing to see when I first looked into who Adam was and what he did. Do you, uh, are you a big cook, Adam? Um, I cook every day, actually. But Whoa. the reason that the cookie recipe is on there is I think from the ages of about 15 to 17, I worked part-time in a cookie shop. also did coffee as well, which is where I kind of learned some of my elite coffee-making skills. I, and love the, as, I love the idea that you've got elite coffee-making skills. That's it, awesome. It's, it's, well, you see, they're very useful because when it comes to getting developers on board with the type of processes we try to, getting designers to buy into things, most of our industry runs on coffee. So if you can make a decent cup of coffee, it's a good way to win people over. That is very true. I cannot deny that. And as somebody that cannot make coffee because I don't drink coffee... That, that, has, that has held my career back, Adam, if I'm honest. I've got to admit, though, I did suffer to learn those skills. My boss in those days was a very angry Italian man. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I hope that's in your LinkedIn profile, that you have elite coffee-making skills. It might be. I, I, I'm not sure if I've... Uh, I haven't looked down at the endorsement section for a while, maybe. <laughs> maybe it's appeared. I think it's in one of the recommendations on there. <laughs> Anyway, yes. What were we talking about? We were talking oh, about Media coffee. Temple. No, we weren't. We were talking about why there was a cookie recipe. Oh, because you were uh, yes. cookie yes. Place. Yes, so recently, um, after a long, long hiatus from making cookies, probably because I was quite bored with it, um, so I'm 29 now, so yeah, um, you know, good, good, good 12 years had elapsed, and I decided to make some cookies again, um, <laughs> so and it went up. really well, mm-hmm. so I just put them... Uh, Decided a couple of people asked my wife who brought me to work. Uh, a couple of people asked for the recipe. I just thought I'd blog it. And also, I'm kind of trying to keep that more as a personal blog. Um, and we're work- working on a new natural interaction website at the moment, which will be up shortly. Cheap plug there. Yeah, um, no, that was good. I liked it. have a blog mm. on it. And meanwhile, I've been blogging on Medium a bit about the professional side of things. Yeah, that's really interesting because I'm the other way around. On my own blog, Boag World, which started off as a personal blog, that's now all work-related. And Medium, I use for personal stuff. It's weird, isn't it? I don't, I don't really quite understand Medium. I don't understand how it fits in. I can understand if you don't have a blog as to you know where it fits in, but mm. I found though actually with blogging, when I've cross-posted stuff to both LinkedIn and Medium, LinkedIn gets far more engagement in terms of comments and shares. Yeah. It is true. I ought to put more stuff on LinkedIn, but I don't know. There's a little bit of me that can't help but not like LinkedIn. It's full of recruiters. It is. Excellent and contribute valuably to our industry and never annoyingly phone everything. (laughs) (coughs) Beautifully described. Totally false, but beautifully described. (laughs) 
Hi. Anyway, sponsorship, Medium te- Media Temple. I need to talk about these guys. The most popular hosting platform for designers, developers, and creative potentials. They offer um, VP- uh, VPS, virtual private servers, right? That have a guaranteed uptime of 99.999%. That's just showing off. But what I don't understand, Media Temple, you can explain this to me. What when you say it's guaranteed, what does that mean? Does it mean if it isn't if its uptime is less than ninety nine point nine nine nine, you give me cookies or what you know what do you know what I mean? What does they it all mean? say that? Do they is that it's what it because is? Because that's what all of them say. Okay. Basically. I just like to think that they've got the admin's uh, treasured pet. Um, and they've got it at gunpoint, and you know there will be ninety nine point nine 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 nine, however reoccurring percent uptime, or else. Yeah. So basically, if the server goes down too much, the you know, dies. the kitten dies. That's a lovely thought, Adam. That makes me feel much better when my site does occasionally go down. That a kitten has died as a consequence. <laughs> well, you see, it doesn't with Media Temple with their fabulous uptime. You're well, no, of- I, I host with Media Temple, and I have known before the site to go down, but it's almost always because I. Uh, yes, it's always my fault. <laughs> I honestly don't think it's ever been Media Temple's fault. So probably a kitten hasn't died. Perhaps I ought to start that myself. When I cock up, I kill a kitten. No, that's probably not good. Nothing to say to that, Paul. (laughs) Stop now. So they've got high performance um, uh, solid state drives on their servers, scalable RAM as much as you need, and it comes in three flavors, right? These are the fleet: strawberry, strawberry, chocolate, and vanilla, because those are the three boringest flavors. No, they have exciting flavors. They've got a self managed version, which is for the Linux experts out there, which is a, a complete bare bones install that you can configure in any way you want. That is not for me. I should not have that, and I don't have that. What I have instead is I have the managed VPS, which um, gives you a control panel you work with. Again, truthfully, that should not be for me, and that's where things go wrong, (laughs) right? What I really need is their fully managed server, where the Media Temple team manage everything for me. Um, probably even then I'd managed to break it because I have a remarkable ability in that. So those are the three different versions. So basically you can have it set up however you want. You can get a special discount as a BOAG world listener. You use the promo code BOAG, B-O-A-G, for 25% off your web hosting, and you go to boagworld.com forward slash media temple, and you can enter your promo code upon sign up. So there we go. So discussion time. What are we here to talk about? Ah, yes, that's it. I knew that. Lean UX. So this was a conversation that we had, wasn't it, Adam, ages ago. I can't remember how we got onto Lean UX because it wasn't what we were talking about. I think it was kind of a business consultancy discussion, wasn't it, originally when we spoke? Yes, we were doing like a a kind of, yeah, one of my mentorship thingy-me-bobs. But we got onto the subject of Lean UX, and you you suddenly got really passionate and enthusiastic and uh, etc. And I've been kind of waiting for an appropriate time to introduce the subject so I could get you on. And when better than a season where you're talking about user experience? So, Adam, what's Lean UX? Give us give us the potted version for Marcus, really. Right. So, Marcus well, and everyone Lee- listening. Yeah. No, Marcus everyone listening and- knows. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. No, go on. 
Right. So Lean UX is about delivering the benefits of our work of the work we do faster. So the way that we'd go about that is working in smaller batch sizes and validating with users and stakeholders more frequently rather than doing big design up front. Okay. That's Lean UX in a nutshell. Right. See, see that is, uh, did you read that? Because that was very well structured. You read that from somewhere, didn't you? Well, I, I, may, I may have read it off my show notes. Ah, okay. <laughs> it's, it's a question I'm asked a lot, so okay. I'm quite used to answering on the fly. Yeah, you, you had a very, it was very smooth patter there. Okay, right. I'm going to, I'm immediately going to challenge you over this because I've got mixed feelings about lean UX. I love the principle, right? Don't get me wrong. Working fast and efficient, but isn't there a danger that you're just basically cutting corners? Doesn't it feel a bit like that? Not at all. I think with with Lean UX, um, I think the whole thing is about really taking a more robust and scientific approach. So actually, we're validating early and validating frequently. So if anything, we're probably cutting less corners. We might we might be removing waste, which is completely different. Yeah. Hmm. Now, what do you mean by waste then? So quite often, I think we you know. As an industry, we have a tendency to spend a lot of time on producing beautiful documentation. And often that documentation has a purpose and communicates something. But the question is, what happens to that after the project? Sometimes you can invest a lot of time and effort in producing something that really, you know, someone might look at once, such as a big research report. Then it maybe goes in, in a folder or on someone's shared area for, forevermore. Yeah. Yet about six months of effort and investment have gone into producing that yeah i do know what you mean actually because mm. i i i feel like i do that sometimes so i produce these these documents which their value they kind of have a value they have a value in in convincing stakeholders and and getting agreement and bringing people along but you do feel sometimes that it, you know that, that beyond that their value is fairly limited so what in you lean ux would you? I presume you'd use a prototype or something else instead as a way of getting others, you know, on board with the process. Would you? So there are a few different ways that we could go about it. I think generally at the start of projects, um, you know, we all tend to make assumptions, which is perfectly normal and healthy. But often those assumptions are they can be fairly inc- well. I'll start that again. They they can be incorrect. So often we'll assume that user will use a feature, and we don't really challenge that. And those assumptions, quite often a a project can succeed or fail based on those. Mm. So often, you know, we might not find that out till the end of a project. So really, it's about trying to build, I guess, build the smallest possible thing we can to validate those assumptions as early as possible. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just trying to think whether that... I, I kind of... It kind of works in, in, in most situations. I'm a kind of great fan of building a, a prototype as quickly as possible. But when, sometimes you get into needing to convince stakeholders of the value of the project in terms of business objectives or justifying user needs. And you can't always do that through you know some reusable delivery there's there is some there is a need in some situations for some kind of documentation don't you think i do but at the same time i guess there's also documentation you can produce as part of getting the project done 
Yeah. So, for example, if uh, you know you've got you've got a block of time and you need to convince some stakeholders, is it worth just actually maybe running some quick remote user tests or user research, whatever we're calling it? I know some people have the have issues with the term user testing, but basically run a few quick user tests and share the findings from that, actually validating those assumptions or maybe just talking through it. Yeah, I, I think there are quicker ways to get those answers. Yeah, no, I accept that. I think so where you were going to say something, Marcus? Yeah, I think I'm just to trying to summarise what Adam's saying here um, is that you should always look for the quickest route. Rather, yeah. you know, sometimes it might be that you need to create some kind of documentation, um, but not always, and you should be trying to find the the leanest way of doing it. That's do you think? Do you think that agencies are a kind of uh, well, I'm trying to think of the right word to use here. Lazy isn't the right word. Um, do you think Set that... in their ways. Or, or, yeah, focus too much on kind of the deliverables of the project rather than the, the kind of final working website. So, for example, you know, when we write a proposal, sometimes our proposal has as a deliverable in it a set of personas or... Uh, you know, or a, you know, a report or whatever. And I, I, th- I guess we sell those kinds of things rather than necessarily focusing on selling the end final working site. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a fair assessment, really. Mm, yeah. I think where I struggle with it a bit is that one of the, one of the nice things about, um, kind of you know the working relationship that i increasingly have with 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 um clients is is taking it in little steps that sometimes they don't want to you know if i went to one of my clients one of my big clients um and said okay yeah you know we we, when we start working with them they don't even necessarily know what it is that they want they don't necessarily know what that end deliverable that end site is um or web app or mobile app or whatever it be so you've kind of got to break it down into little stages um and one stage might just be kind of a a report or a you know a strategy document or something like that are you saying that those kinds of things are wrong or do you know what i'm getting at here yeah yeah absolutely I, i don't think they're necessarily wrong so when you're going into a project and maybe the client doesn't know what what they want to build or alternatively they might come to you with a massive list of requirements mm-hmm. it's actually worth just trying to convince them to have a bit of a workshop with you where you work out basically turn those ideas into hypotheses yeah. that are testable okay. so to to give an example and um, you know often you get these massive requirements documents at the start of a project saying, you know, specifying everything down to the nth degree and a big list of features that lots of, lots of, especially with big clients, lots of different stakeholders before engaging you have come up with a lot of ideas. But what you need to do is start talking about, I guess, the business benefit and the outcome they're hoping to achieve with those ideas and then write it down in a form that you could test. Okay, which I guess turns it into a kind of a step it's basically minimizing the number of steps along the way isn't it really is yeah. what we're trying to do here marcus yeah. what do you think about it i kind of think well going back to what i was just saying about trying to find well a the quickest route to um, an effective result and um 
be, be being able to sort of change while you're doing stuff. I think I kind of I like to think that we're trying to do we do that anyway. Yeah. Um, so it's just we we don't call it lean UX. Um, but I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just I'm listening in here because you know listening to James last week from Clear Left. I certainly picked up some useful stuff there, and I, th- I think I'm I am here as well. So I th- you know it, it's not like you do UX design or you do lean UX design. I think that you know the two overlap. Um, oh yeah. yeah. And it's just a question of, uh, I, lo- I really like the idea of trying to be as quick and effective as possible. Uh, I think that's what I'm taking from this so far. And, you know, and any examples of that you can add, Adam, that would be really helpful. Okay, so good practical example is um, earlier this year I worked on a redesign of a um, network of dealer websites for mm-hmm. Uh, a ma- fairly major car brand. I can't name them yet because it's not live. But essentially what we did was um, we had a very quick discovery phase, so a couple of weeks of a start where we just went around, spoke to you know the relevant stakeholders there to understand a bit about what they're hoping to achieve with the project. But then we got very early into prototyping. Now, a lot of assumptions have been documented in that two-week discovery phase that, you know, they thought that, for example, displaying certain things prominently would have a certain effect. Mm -hmm. So what we did was really quickly, we wrote wrote some tasks. We put together a very, we put together a high fidelity prototype, but it was, it was very early and just began to test those assumptions Mm-hmm. And then what we were able to do within two, the first two-week sprint, we were able then to go back to them with with some uh, results from the testing, with some videos of real users interacting with it. And then that easily allowed us to, and allowed the clients as well, to understand you know, the, whether that some of those assumptions were correct in the first place, um, how people understood their, understood their range of cars. And then that allowed us to make some decisions early rather than going down a you know going down a route where perhaps we would test after six weeks or twelve weeks mm. when a lot more work had been done and actually we'd taken the project in completely the wrong direction I mean I totally agree with the idea of testing early yeah I think that's that's absolutely vital i I think I, I know I'm sounding a little bit hesitant and it's not I mean the goal of obviously taking the shortest distance um to a final deliverable absolutely agree with you know that you can't argue with that the idea of testing early and often again you can't disagree with that the idea of 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 avoiding um, uh, too many assumptions or testing any, any assumptions you make. Again, you know, it's common sense. I think where my hesitancy is coming from is twofold. One, that um, I think there is maybe a danger of swinging too far in that direction. So it does turn into a kind of, you know, it's just an excuse to keep the price low and get things out of the door quickly. Um so there is a danger there doesn't mean that you shouldn't you know avoid you should avoid this entirely but it's something you need to bear in mind and i think the other concern is maybe dependent on the type of clients that i perhaps work with that are much larger larger organizations with highly complex um internal processes and that creating a great user experience is about a lot more than actually the final user interface that you're creating a lot of it is about governance and business processes and those kinds of things um which 
are complex issues that do need reports and thinking about and discussions and meetings and all the boring stuff that perhaps people avoid in other situations. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, I would say when it comes to changing the way that organisations work and kind of looking at things like governance and how they service their customers, you can still run experiments there as well. Oh, yeah. So, you know, you for example, with a cert, you could take a segment of their customers, maybe treat them in a slightly different way and see how that, what the impact is. That's a really nice idea, actually, and not something I've ever done. Kind Passing of, that one down. Yeah, I like that one. It's almost creating a pilot project, you know, or a prototype, but not not for a, necessarily a user interface, but just you know, in how you're dealing with a certain number of uh, with of people, you know, a, a pilot project where you try it out. Nice. There's a technique used in lean startups called Wizard of Oz, where basically they'll put up a page that promises a service that does something. So there was one recently, I've forgotten the name of it, but basically they offered an app where you could text and they would do anything for you. Yes, yes, and I know that, yeah. The idea was that eventually it would all be automated and they gave the impression to users that it was. But what was brilliant was actually they just sat a load of people in a room and began, they prototyped this service by just basically putting a page up that let people do this. Right. But, uh, and then actually just, they did just it did it for them. Did it manually, looked at what the common requests were, and then prioritize what they'd automate. But the whole the whole thing was really about make you know testing which features which features people would use. And it was very easy to set up. All they did was put up, I think it was an Insta page. Yeah. And they did something clever with a text messaging. I think there was a service called Twillo, which yeah. can pass SMS. And then I think they just put it all I think it was onto a Trello board or something and just mm-hmm. did the request sequentially. So it's really easy. The, I think prototyping is definitely one way. When we talk about kind of web user interfaces, that's a really you know, sensible way yeah. to go about testing assumptions. But actually there are a number of different ways. You know, If you're looking at kind of fundamental ways that a client does business and you want to help them innovate fast, there are lots of different ways that you can experiment. It doesn't necessarily have to be just a web page. Uh, and yeah, now, now I'm beginning to get it a little bit more and seeing how how that kind of can work in practice because you know for example um i'm doing i've got i've got a customer journey workshop meeting for a major charity on monday and um i know out of that will come what we want to do is look at the future what the future customer journey would look like you know and and how that experience could be different from what it is now but that will involve all kinds of organizational changes as well as, you know, new user interfaces along the way. But yeah, what you've described there is perfectly pro- uh, possible that you kind of do a, a kind of a, a quick and dirty behind the scenes, um, you know, testing of that new system and see whether it, you know, it could work in practice and, and how it would work and whether it's worth the investment, et cetera. That makes a lot of sense. Now I'm getting it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, the one thing that that kind of is really important, as I understand it with Lean UX, is kind of a good engagement with the client through the process because you're you're making a lot of uh, decisions on the fly and because you're you know you don't have this big specification that defines everything up front how do you how do you guys get around the problem of the client not being constantly available to see your work in progress because that's got to be a big issue, is it not? 
Yes, and it has been on past projects, and we, we've learned quite a lot from the first couple of times we've done this. Yeah. So we tend to work with this, we'll tend to work in time block sprints. Usually there'll be two weeks, just because uh, often we collaborate with developers, and you know, two weeks seems like a decent amount of time to tackle any task. Sure. And what we do is when we agree with clients up front that we're going to work in this way, we make them commit to giving us a certain amount of time every week. Right. It is good to try and cut the feedback loop and have really uh, frequent conversations with clients as well. So, I mean, something we've had great success with recently is we've set up single kind of set clients up as single channel guests in Slack. Yeah. And we've set the expectation of course it's not necessarily like texting us we won't always instantly respond but we've been doing a uh, big project for an education supplies company recently and they have uh, we've been running the project i think for about six weeks now they've sent us three emails and all of the rest of the conversation and communication that hasn't been face to face or over the phone has been via slack and so do you are you finding that they're they're responding faster than they would via email I think so because when you write an email, it's actually quite a big onerous task. There's some, you know, there's lots of conventions associated with email where you have to sign it, you have yeah. to really kind of think through how you articulate things. Whereas instant messages, people just seem to have a tendency to respond quicker. It yeah. may be that we've just got a great client who's really engaged with the project, which is always because. But I think the other thing as well is when we begin, when they begin to see how fast we're progressing and how fast we're learning um, from, you know, from users and also learning a bit more around their business as well, I think actually that, that excitement can really help get, get your clients engaged in the project. Mm. Do you, do you um, kind of include them in daily stand-ups or anything like that? They're always welcome to join in. Um, right. Although having said that, with a lot of our stand-ups, I, I like to try and make it so I think when you invite clients to daily stand-ups, sometimes there can be, you know, people might be reticent to say what the what the true state of the project yeah. is. I mean, we try to encourage <laughs> everyone on our teams and we often work with like multiple agencies as well. So it's kind of culturally fairly different to what they're used to. Yeah. So... You know, I, I do want to kind of create a bit of a no bullshit environment around where people will just be honest with me about how things are going. Because I think that's the point of a daily stand up, really. Yeah. It's kind of what did you do yesterday? What did you do today? And is there anything I can do to, you know, anything I can remove out your way, basically, before you progress? So, so what do you do? What's your kind of minimal expectation of uh, for a, for a client's availability? Do you want them to be? Do you do a call with them weekly or biweekly or? We not? do a. Depending on the project, we will always do a sprint demo day. Right. Um, and how and long do your sprints last then? Our sprints are two weeks. Okay. And we will always expect to spend some face-to-face time with a client, <laughs> uh, you know, two or three hours every two weeks. Okay. On top of that, it, depending again on what they've asked us to look into, if we think or say they're their organization's very hierarchical and they need lots of need lots of involvement and you know need to feel they're approving things then it's you know we'll we'll agree a time up front so it may be that they block half a day of their calendar out once a week to review work in progress mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense but we we do have a habit as well with especially with prototyping work we tend to give them a url that's frequently updated we'll usually give yeah. them to one for stakeholders but one where they can just check in and yeah. see mm-hmm. how things are progressing so when you say you face to you you when you say a face to face meeting once every two weeks at least are you talking literally face to face? Do you work with a lot of local clients then, or do you find yourself travelling around a lot? 
travel a bit. Um, I mean, we we've made a conscious decision as an agency to try and kind of generally we we deal with clients mostly outside London. Okay. Um, the re- the reason behind that we're not we do have nothing against London, but at the same time, going into London and coming out of London, regardless of where you are in the country, it can just really consume time. Yeah. We do we do use we do use kind of Google Hangouts and Skype as well, though. Okay. But I, I think sometimes it. The problem is if you've got people behind a screen, they can't just necessarily sketch something down as easily or kind mm-hmm. of it does maybe increase the distance. Mm. But having said that, you know, it's it's really good if you need a quick frequent if you need to frequently stay in touch with clients, but we do like to meet with them regularly face to face. So how do you go about costing these projects then? Because you know uh, or even for that matter, pitching for them. Right. You know, what is it that you're selling? Because cause you know what clients are like. They come to you with a brief and the brief says, we want exactly this. This is what we're after. And you have to effectively turn around and say, well, um, we don't think you should um, go for this specific thing. I think we should check, test your assumptions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we don't know what the final defined deliverable is. So how do you cost it? How do you work, you know, deal with all those kinds of things? So we cost primarily on a time and materials basis. Um, But when it comes to selling the idea to clients, usually we will – I'm just trying to think about the best way to say this. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Just say it. Whenever whenever somebody says think of the best way to say it, no, that's totally indiscreet. We we basically – we will send a response to a client usually if we're invited to respond to an RFP and they've asked for a specific format. We will say, okay – I'm sorry, but we we work in a different way. And then we give case studies and evidence explaining the benefits of that approach. So our case studies where we've had significant success on projects, yeah. they, they also explain about the methodology we use. So in terms of estimation, what we do is it's basically we agree with the client what the rough deliverable is. Mm-hmm. So... In terms of they will expect to get a prototype of their website at the end of it, for example. Yeah. So we agree that we will tackle all of these different items in that space of time, but we agree with them that basically, if uh, if they're going to, you know, if they need something needs more time, such as a product page needs more care and attention, or you know, there's there's more internal conflict or politics around something such as a homepage, that we can adjust the time as we learn. Okay. So um, essentially what you're doing is you're giving them an estimate of how long you think it will take, but you make no guarantees for that. Absolutely. Although we do tend to build into our estimates um, kind of small project completion on time bonuses. Okay. So, you know, it tends to be something small, maybe around 5%. Yeah. But what that does is I'd say generally – well, no, factually, actually, 80% of our projects have run on time and on budget, mm-hmm. which I think is, is a pretty good track record for, for a kind of UX shop. And that's including including projects where we've collaborated with other agencies and done the, you know, done a bit of design and some front-end development as well in line with this methodology. Sure. Cool. Well, I mean, yeah, that's a, a, a reasonable figure. I, I, I just I, – I struggle to imagine – I suppose it depends on the type of clients you work for again. Again, you know, with some of the stuff that Headscape does, that would just, you know, kill it dead, wouldn't it, Marcus? Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I, I find myself avoiding, um, you know, 
so-called opportunities to, uh, you know, tender for big projects because more and more I realise, I mean, it, it's not to say that you will never win something out of the, uh, not necessarily out of the blue. There's normally a connection why somebody's invited you to tender for something. But if you're not, if you're, if, if, if you just receive the we'd like you to tender or would you like to tender for this project and that's it from a procure- procurement department, then usually oh, yeah. that means oh, it's not, yeah, it's, it's that, not going great. anywhere. So if, so therefore, if you're able to actually talk to people, you know, the, the, the good opportunities of people that talk to you before there's any kind of um, RFP released, then you can have conversations about budget estimates. Um, you know, that's what they want to find out from you. Okay, yeah, I I accept that, Marcus. But could you honestly imagine, you know, let's say Mike McConnell from um, University of Aberdeen, right? Mm. I don't know why I picked him because we've got a good relationship with the guy. We like the guy. Um, but could you imagine a scenario where um, he comes to us wanting us to do some work and we'll turn around to him and say, you know, okay, we're up for the work, but it's time and materials. A, I don't think he would would swallow that because of the culture of of the University of Aberdeen. And B, even if he did, I don't think it'd ever get past the procurement department, would it? Probably not. Although, you know, they, they will they will hire legal people who will charge only on a TNM basis. So mm. you know, uh, you know, it depends on the type of project. I mean we we've just been doing doing some work for University of Hull, which has been uh, or we're in the middle of it um, and it's a kind of semi-agile sprint-based um project where we are saying for you know sprints one two three and four it will cost x um but because it's that type of project you know we don't we can't guarantee what that prototype is going to be exactly what it's going to be at the end of it so more more and more this way of pricing is it's happening even for kind of you know old timer agencies like us so that's that's <laughs> not to say that well, i don't receive an rfp that states this is you know we want you to do x and this is the budget and we basically have to take a take a view on whether we we feel we can do it within that mm. budget and yeah of course they will only accept a fixed price well, i suppose we have the same thing as well um and natural interactions so we will you know you find out the client's got a finite pot of money usually to achieve something. Yeah. So the way we, we usually explain that is we will achieve the best possible result we can for yeah. that amount of money. So then it's, you know, we can keep exploring these things, but they have to accept there's a finite amount of time to do it. Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes more sense to me. I think you're never going to get around the fact that they have a finite pot of money. Um, and I think some t- and the idea of time and materials, I think, can be quite scary to a lot of companies if they don't know that there's a, you know, that there is um, an upper limit to that um, and that they're going to get something working within that upper limit. Yeah, you can quibble over, you know, the nice to have features or exactly what that will be, etc. But, you know, they're not going to agree to pay, you know, an unlimited sum for a website of some description, mm. you know, and equally, they're not going to say, you know, um, we get to the end of 50 grand's worth of expenditure and find that we've got a half working site. You know, they're going to want something that's operational at the end. But of course, that's not a massive issue with Agile anyway, because you work in a sprint format, which means that you're delivering deliverable code, you know, often anyway. But that's yeah. it's just a bit of an explanation, isn't it? Really, 
But my, my experience of because we, uh, you know, all kind of ongoing work that we do for existing clients, well, not all, but the majority of that is on is done on a TNM basis. And my and the way I've observed that over the years is the clients get a lot more um, for their money doing it TNM than they do if they insist on a fixed price. Oh yeah. But, Absolutely, yeah. because you don't have to build the contingency in. Exactly, but yeah, I mean, maybe maybe for larger projects that might not be true. I don't know, but yeah. What about designers, Adam? Because I mean, this isn't just something you have to convince clients about. It's also something you have to convince designers about because they go from you know going away into a room and and preciously producing their design to being to a situation where they're having to show their design often and early when it's not finished and you know things are half done and you know and and they might show something and it gets ripped apart and they start again now i know as someone that was a designer for years you can become quite attached to the design that you produce so do you find problems kind of bringing designers around to that way of thinking i think i have in the past although i've got quite a tried and tested method for doing this now right so thinking about how kind of traditional advertising agencies work generally people go into client meetings looking for a tada moment they're looking mm-hmm. to whip the dust sheet off something and the client <laughs> just to weep with joy and you know <laughs> Which and, and yell it's trumpets in, yeah precisely <laughs> And when has has that ever happened to anyone? <laughs> so, well, I did produce some pretty stunning designs when I was younger. I obviously didn't see those ones. No, before your time, <laughs> oh, right, right. <laughs> before my time. That is going back some. And <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, especially I, I, I challenge anyone. I will, I will bake a batch of cookies for anyone <laughs> who can give me evidence that that has ever happened on a digital project. <laughs> Weeping is required, though. <laughs> so often, you know, designers who are resting to show their their work early, I think they're just prolonging the inevitable moment when where a client's going to say no. Yeah. So the way I tend to explain it is using this Lean UX methodology, we get to we can actually get the beautiful design past the client. We're actually with fewer amends, and the way that we do that is. Because we're testing early, we're testing those assumptions early, ideally getting users on there. The discussion with clients turns from, you know, turns into, I guess it's much more valuable because actually then we're talking about how to solve user problems. They'll see when we present the design, we present it in the context of users interacting with it. Uh-huh. So they will see a video of Marcus, for example, trying to find find their really, really important product that's been buried under lots of uh, text or instantly finding it. But then we start discussing the problems that, or challenges that user had. And then actually often the clients meet, you know, the meetings, clients feel that they, they need to feel they've contributed. It's mm-hmm. their job. Mm-hmm. You know, they're spending a load of money. They need to justify it. And, you know, I, I I've been on the other side of a table, actually, as a client in the past as well, when I've worked client side, and there's a pressure and a need to contribute. So what you need to do is channel channel that need into something constructive. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's what that's what really helps sell it to designers. Yeah, and I do totally agree with it. I mean, you know, I make 
I may have expressed some concerns about documentation and stuff earlier in the discussion, but when it comes to the practicalities of building a website, Lean UX just makes so much sense from the prototyping through to, to the way that a designer works. And, you know, the worst thing you can do is go for a ta-da moment. It just is disastrous whenever, whenever you do, because it's inevitable that it's going to come as a shock and a surprise to people. And people don't like shocks and surprises. But if they've seen the mood boards, if they've seen the sketches, if they've seen the user testing, if they've contributed to the discussions, then when you show them a, a final you know, design concept, it's just going to be obvious. You know, it's just what they were expecting. So, yeah, absolutely. The, the other consideration as well is I think as an industry, sometimes we have a tendency to kill client ideas without giving them a yeah. chance to succeed. Yes. And actually, we make a point of when we, when we run these, when we run these uh, assumptions workshops at the start of projects, sometimes clients will come up with ideas that we don't necessarily agree with. You know, certain things you, you do have to sort of still shoot down because you if you can share evidence that yeah. proves, proves it's not worth doing. But ultimately, putting a few of the ideas that clients come up with into tests and seeing how users react to them, it's a lot easier to get someone else to call their baby ugly than do it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Beautifully put. <laughs> and that's the glory of usability testing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it does exactly that because you can guarantee users won't pull their punches. <laughs> and to, on the flip side, though, we have, uh, you know, I've been proven wrong on yeah. the same basis as well definitely yeah. i've i've thought things wouldn't wouldn't work with users and actually i think we do need to accept that often our clients will have a certain num- certain amount of domain knowledge mm-hmm. they're not always completely divorced from customers either yeah. and yeah. sometimes you know they will know what will work so giving their ideas a chance to succeed it, it helps them feel involved in the design process I, that, that's Good to hear. Marcus, you, you often say that, don't you, that, that, that clients can have good design ideas too. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It, it, it's, you never know until, until you get into a project. That's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. It does vary, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. But One yeah, last... But- Sorry, go on, Marcus. No, no, you carry on. I was just going to. I was just going to um, underline the. Uh, you were just padding. Uh, weren't yeah, you? I was padding. Carry yes. on. We're, we're probably running out of time anyway. We are running out of time, but before we finish up, I do just want to um, just as somebody starting out in lean UX, you know, if they were trying this for the first time and using that kind of prototyping mentality, that testing often mentality, etc. What advice would you give people to start them off? I think. Be honest with your clients about it. Mm. Um, you get, there's there's plenty of resources online. Probably a good place to start would be read uh, Jeff Gothelf's book on Gothelf, actually not Gothelf, although that would be much cooler. Um, Jeff <laughs> Gothelf's book on Lean UX and um, read the Lean Startup by Eric Ries as well, just to get a bit of an understanding. Um, because I've probably explained it fairly ineloquently, but. Get get a bit of an understanding of it first, and then probably start with something small. If you mm-hmm. you know if you're just doing a small experiment for a client or a small project, it's probably not worth you know if, if you have if you're inexperienced with it. And also, if you're learning on your client's time, then you're probably going to have to put a few extra hours in yourself as well mm. that aren't necessarily billable. Because I don't think it's necessarily fair to make you know make clients fund our learning. Oh, I don't know. I'll make a client fund anything I can if I can get away with it. But then I'm unethical, so, you know. No, Who only works for not-for-profits. Who only works, yeah, I quite like ripping off charities. <laughs> what gets me up in the morning? 
Well, you know, a percentage of your profits does go back to charity, doesn't it? So, goes round in a circle. That's yeah. very true. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and the other, going back to Jeff and his book, the, he also wrote a quite a nice introduction on Smashing Magazine about Lean UX as well. So you might want to check that out if you're too tight to buy his book. But he, read that and then buy his book. So that's good. Thank you, Adam. That's really good. <laughs> This is where we normally move into our second sponsor slot and mm. before Marcus tells his joke. But I did a deal with Marcus very mm. rashly a while ago, and I said that you could you could actually have Headscape as a sponsor. Yeah. Now, bearing in mind you didn't pay me a penny for this, which I'm very bitter about, although I am still a director of the company, <laughs> so I don't quite know why I'm saying that. <laughs> because I'm unethical, probably, as we've already established. So, Marcus... Yes. Go on, do it. This is really interesting. Blatant advertising for, yeah, coming up. Blatant advertising for Headscape. I'm looking forward to hearing this because I used to be the marketing and salesperson for Headscape. So I'm now looking forward to seeing what, what Marcus does. I'm going to judge you on this. Okay. Well, I, I'm somewhat worried um, about the stick I'm about to receive or already am receiving because I've been a bit unkind maybe to some of the sponsors on, on the show so yes, far. Yes, you have. <clears throat> So why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, well, it kind of all it, it all harks back to the time when Paul abandoned us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still a director. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, but, you know, we, we've been around for a long time. We've got a very good reputation, um, but that isn't enough. Uh, and this podcast is really my only window or Headscape's only window to the world when it used to be, you know, Paul, you talking around the world and, and writing many times and a lot about you know about the work that you did and the work that we did mm-hmm. uh, and we're promoting headscape and that happens less now so mm-hmm. i thought Much well less you're very bad at it <laughs> <laughs> yes true but so I, I wanted this slot to remind everyone what headscape is and what it does go for it um, is that it is that it? we're here hello <laughs> well it's a bit more people than that. people at headscape this is an appeal on behalf of Headscape. <laughs> yeah, like Since that. they were abandoned by Paul. <laughs> so, yeah, here we go. Neat yeah. opportunities. They will deliver amazingly, but they need your help to work their way. Out. I, I couldn't yeah. have put it better myself. Right. <laughs> work their way out of poverty. <laughs> yeah, honestly, that's how it is. Still a director, remember. <laughs> you got more work that you could shake a stick at, Mark. Go on. We have at the moment, it's true, but you never know what's round 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 the corner. Uh, but anyway, I'll go, I've got I've got to spread this out over four weeks, Paul. Is that right? Yeah, you have. You got. Yeah. We've got to do this four times. So I'm not going to talk about the what we do in any de- great detail this week. I'll save that for later episodes. Um, but just in a nutshell, what it says on the homepage of our website is that we do digital strategy, web design, and development. And that kind of covers it, really, at a high level. Mm. Um, it's worth pointing out, though, that we tend to focus more on the the first two of those, digital strategy and web design. We, we do a lot of development work, but we tend not to just do technical-only work. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do a lot of consulting and a lot of design-only um, uh, projects. Um, we work in a number of different sectors and we have a lot of different clients, but it's worth saying that we, our biggest sector would be higher education that's closely followed by not-for-profit and the charity sector. Uh, but we do work with a wide array of commercial clients um, in many different parts of the world and over the 13 years we've been around. 
You can tell I'm reading this now, can't you? Yeah. You, 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 la, 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 it's, la, no, it's la, good because you get all the messages out. It's good. Okay. Um, we work with very large organisations like um, Nestle and Merck, and we work with global charities like uh, MSF, or Medicine Sans Frontières, and AWID. Um, but equally, we work with many local organisations like Hampshire Fire and Rescue Service and the Royal Hospital Chelsea. But why, why, why does the listener of this show care? Um, and I guess that depends an awful lot on what you do. But many times in the past, we've said that we're hired often um, by people who work within web, you know, the web teams of these large organisations to get their ideas listened to and to make them happen. So I guess we, we've got a lot of experience. We're a highly skilled, um, highly experienced team that have produced a lot of great work over the years. Um, and hopefully this podcast is testament to the, the fact that we're pretty approachable and we like to have fun when we work. So that's about it, really, for this week. And I'll I, add that, more about what we do next week. That was very well done, Marcus. <laughs> and how it, condescending can you be, Paul? No, no, <laughs> you did very well. But it is worth saying there are other web design agencies available. Natural interaction is a very good one. <laughs> and also, if you want digital strategy, you're much better coming to me. But other than that, that was great. No, it's, I, I've, I have got nothing but huge respect for the guys at Headscape. They're, I mean, Ed is one of the best designers I've ever met. In the world. Oh, he is just phenomenal. And um, Dan is an amazing front-end coder. He was far more fussy than, than is good for any human being um, in terms of the quality of stuff. So it's, it's a really great team. I could go on and name everybody, but that would get boring. So, okay, that's um, Headscape sponsor, but we're not done with you yet, Marcus, because we're reliant on your joke. Okay, well, this is one of the top ten funniest jokes from the Edinburgh Fringe. Very quick one. When clowns divorce, there's a custody battle. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. That was for uh, Simon Munnery. Oh, I've never heard of him, but that's an excellent joke. Well it is an excellent joke. Well, Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Um, you, and there was some real gems in there that, that yeah, is going to change the way I work, definitely, which is always encouraging. And next week, we're going to talk about user research with Lisa Reichelt, who um, used to work for the Government Digital Service here in the UK, has now gone across to Australia to do the same thing. So she's not going to be joining us for the whole show um, because, to be frank, she it would be like the middle of the night for her when we record the show. But I'm going to record a, a chat with her next week. I have to get up at 7.30 a.m. to record an interview with her. No, um, you have to flip the audio the right way up, though, afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Two See, jokes no, in one show. Yeah, that was a better joke than yours, Marcus. <laughs> so on that, uh, just that, that wonderful joke, we will call it it for this week. Um, join us next week. But for now, thanks for listening. Bye.